Welcome to the Progressive Property Podcast, helping you invest in property for freedom, choice, and profit. You'll learn new, innovative, and multiple streams of property income, whether you want to start, scale, or systemize, and even if you don't have deposits. Hi, I'm Peter Jones, Chartered Surveyor, Author, and Property Investor, and this is the Progressive Property Podcast. But not just any podcast. Because today, believe it or not, I'm recording the 100th ever episode of the Progressive Property Podcast. Now, let's be clear, I haven't yet done 100, so we'll have another party when I've done 100. I actually jumped on at episode 21. But this is the 100th one that has been put out there for the progressive community, hopefully to inspire and encourage and help you along the way in your property journey. And we're having a bit of a party in, in the recording studio today. Harry the Tech Guys is coming with his party hat on. And we've got party poppers for later. And there's even a fairy cake. But this is all about you because I want to thank you, the listeners. Because without you, there would have been no point putting this podcast together at all. But you've been listening diligently for 100 episodes. So thank you very much, dear listeners. And the feedback which we've had has been fantastic. So many people come up to me at the trainings and say that they listen to the podcast and how useful you find it and how you find the information really good. So here's to another 100 and we hope to continue that. So please, please do come and see me at the trainings. Tell me what you like about it. Tell me what you don't like about it. Just remember I'm a bit sensitive though, so say that gently and we'll keep trying to give you the content and the information that you need. So Harry, the tech guy, has actually put together some stats which are very interesting. Apparently, we've done 66.15 hours of podcasts. This is just the Progressive Property Podcast. 66.15 hours, 3,900 minutes. If you want to listen to it continuously, and why wouldn't you? It'll take you 2.75 days. Amazing. We've got listeners in over 50 countries, which is astounding. And hopefully... Over the next year, we're going to smash those stats even more as we do even more podcasts. So in this very special episode, I want to do something a little bit special. We went out to the community, we went onto the Facebook group and we asked you for your questions. And over the next 30, 45 minutes or so, I'm going to answer your questions, your burning questions about property. So deep breath, question number one comes from Adnan, Adnan Misbah. And I remember, Adnan, I remember you from Masterclass. You're an avid listener of uh, the podcast and very encouraging you were too. And Adnan's question is, what is the best and worst piece of advice you've received on your property journey? Well, that is a fantastic question to start off with, because I suppose one thing, just to give this a little bit of context, is that... I don't like to live a nine-to-five lifestyle, and I'm sure many of the listeners will relate to that. I've never really fitted in with the way that we live conventionally, with work. Now, I'm not saying I'm a hippie, although sometimes I do say I'm a little bit of a hippie. You probably wouldn't realise that from looking at me. And actually, having said all of that, saying that I didn't really sort of fit in with the nine-to-five ethos and the way that life is structured at the moment. I was actually quite good at it. I ended up being a partner in a firm of a large firm of chartered surveyors in the West End of London. So it didn't do too bad, but it just felt wrong. It wasn't really who I was. And I remember 
one day in my early 30s, I read a book. And that book was by a guy called Joe Carbo. And it was a classic self-help book. And you don't hear about Joe Carbo very much nowadays. Some of the listeners may remember him. But he wrote this self-help classic, which at that time a lot of the self-help gurus used to refer back to. And it was called The Lazy Man's Way to Riches. Fantastic title for a book. You can see why I bought it. Particularly as I am, actually, if I'm going to confess, this is the 100th episode, so let me be totally transparent. I am a little bit lazy. And Joe, in that book, introduced me into thinking of alternative ways to do things, especially alternative ways to make a living. He actually talked a lot about mail order, which I suppose nowadays the equivalent would be internet marketing. But I could see that there was this other way of doing things, which wasn't the way that I'd been told it had to be done. And just reading that book and just being aware that there were other ways of doing things helped me to explore my entrepreneurialism, which had lain dormant under my corporate lifestyle. So Adnan, I'd say the best piece of advice I ever had was that I didn't have to do things the way that I was doing them, if that makes sense. And it freed me up to explore life in a different way and to look at life in a different way. And ultimately to take that leap of faith leaving the nine-to-five corporate job and going off and doing my own thing. I say that, I was actually made redundant, and that's a, an answer for another question coming up probably. But it gave me the freedom to be able to actually embrace that and to make all of that work, knowing that actually things don't have to be the way that we're told they have to be. So that was probably the best bit of advice that I've ever had, had none. The worst bit of advice, well that's really difficult because there's so much bad advice out there, isn't there? And you have to be really careful, you have to filter it. I suppose though, and this might sound terrible, but maybe some of the worst advice I ever had was actually from my mum. Now don't get me wrong, I love my mum. She's been an amazing inspiration, she's been a, an amazing support in my life, and in my mum's eyes, bless her, I can't really do a thing wrong. But I think one of the things that she used to say to me, particularly when I first started in property on my own, was she used to say, be careful, be careful. And I think, to be honest, in itself, that's not terrible advice. But I think there's a, a possibility that sometimes we can try and be too careful. And I think sometimes we can think that being careful is actually a worthy thing. Now, I'm not saying be reckless. But sometimes I think that it can be just as destructive to be careful as it can be to be completely reckless for opposite reasons, obviously. We need to have a balance between taking the risk and being sensible. And I think that kind of held me back. But if you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, or if you've seen me or met me at any of the trainings at Progressive, you'll know that actually at heart, and this is the hippie bit coming out again probably, I am a bit of a rebel. And I think there's lots of people giving property advice and business advice. That is actually nonsense. But because of the way that we say it and repeat it back to ourselves, we can just accept it as being true. I mean, that's a controversial thing to say, isn't it? But I think one of those things which we listen to and which we sort of nod knowingly at and agree with is that we need to be careful. Actually, why? I mean, this is it, isn't it? We've got one shot at this. Let's have a go at it. Let's, let's try and, you know, make the big time. Let's not hold back. Let's really go for it. So, Adnan, great question. And actually, just looking through the list of questions, I see that Kevin from Fife actually asked the same question. So thank you, Kevin. 
hope that answers your question as well. Let's go on to the next question, which is... Right, well, I need to do this, otherwise I'm going to be in trouble, and you'll see why, because this next question is actually from our very own Mr. Rob Moore, co-founder of Progressive, who put a, a, a question up when I posted on Facebook. And the gist of the question is, how do you find a good mortgage broker? Which I think is going to be relevant to everybody listening to this podcast. Hopefully it will be. But before I even begin to answer that question, let me just take this down a slightly different route by asking a question of my own, which is, should you even use a mortgage broker? Well, the answer to that is, in my opinion, definitely yes. Raising finance, particularly conventional finance from a bank or another lending institution, I think is quite hard and it's not something which you want to do yourself. And sometimes I come across investors, particularly newbie investors, would-be investors, who don't find the finance that they need because they're going on to comparison sites on the internet, for example, and asking for the money. Or they just assume that the easiest way to raise the money is to walk into your local high street bank and meet the manager and tell them what you're going to do and expect them to give you some kind of massive overdraft or credit facility or something. Now, sadly, those days are over, even if they existed at all, because obviously lots of high street banks are being closed down. We're all doing internet banking, which actually I much prefer. But it was never going to be that easy. You always needed a broker. And I'd suggest that nothing has changed. You need a good broker. And a good broker is absolutely worth their weight in gold. And that's why I never quibble about fees if I'm with a good broker. Because a good broker is going to get you the money. And I often say at the trainings, actually, if you, you've probably heard me say this, that when the broker has helped you to raise all the money that you need in order to create and accumulate your portfolio, then in five years' time, ten years' time, when everything's going well, you're not going to be lying in bed one night thinking, I wish I hadn't paid my broker so much. You're just going to be really glad that somebody helped you to move on. So never quibble about the fees if they're good. Because there's things that a broker can do which you can't do. Like they can keep tabs on the market. I mean, even for something simple, our most simple basic strategy is probably buy to let. But did you know that in the buy-to-let market, there's probably, what, 40, 50, 60 different lenders you could go to with about 1,300 different buy-to-let products? And the thing is, those products are constantly changing. And even for the banks themselves, their criteria and terms are constantly changing. So you need somebody to keep tabs on that. It's a full-time job, and that's not your job. The other thing which a great or good broker can do for you is that they can pick up the phone to the underwriter at the bank. So when you make an application, if you don't quite fit the bank's criteria, they can pick up the phone with, to the underwriter and they can persuade them to do something for you which perhaps you wouldn't otherwise be able to get them to do. I, I know that I've had this actually very recently. My broker's been on the phone to the bank because I'm looking to raise some finance. There was one little bit of my application which didn't quite fit what they wanted, but they had a chat about it and the underwriter was satisfied that they could take it forward. You can't do that. You definitely can't do that using a price comparison site. But one thing, which I think coming back to Rob's question, how do you find a good broker, is I think that many investors, and especially new investors, but not always just the new investors, what they don't appreciate fully is that not all brokers are the same. So what do I mean by that? Well, I want to be polite, so I'm going to try and sort of choose my words carefully here. 
Some brokers are very good at providing a basic service. They, I mean, they're very happy to fill an application form for Birmingham Midshires and they'll send it off for you. But that's pretty much all they're going to do. And that's probably not the broker who I choose to do business with, although at a very basic level, they'll probably get you what you need to get you started. But other brokers are much more creative. Now, I'm not suggesting anything dodgy, by the way, in case you're wondering. And they're going to be much more proactive in helping you to find the finance. Because one of the key things is that they understand you. And they understand what you're trying to do. So a good or great broker probably does property for themselves. Now, often, it doesn't necessarily have to be the case that a good or great broker has to do property for themselves, but I think it does help. I've actually come across brokers who are very, very good who don't do it for themselves, but they've been in it so long, they've almost got the mindset of an investor without actually doing the investing, if that makes sense. So it's not a hard and fast rule, but if they are doing property for themselves, probably all the better. And the other thing which a great or good broker probably needs to be able to do is to understand all the different types of finance so that they have a broad understanding of the market so they can come up with more complex finance solutions, a bit like putting together a jigsaw, and they can see how all the bits fit together. At a basic level, if we go back to our buy-to-let example, they need to know how the different banks work together and the order in which you need to go to the different banks, and how much you'll need to borrow from each bank, or how many deals you can do with each bank. Because every bank will have different criteria as the maximum amount they'll lend one borrower, or the maximum number of deals which they'll allow one borrower to do. But there's a lot of politics out there in the lending world, believe it or not, and not all of the lenders actually like each other. And so it could well be that you could want to borrow from bank B, but they won't actually have any dealings with you if you've already borrowed from bank A, for example. So crazy though it sounds, you may want your broker who knows all about the politics to first of all take you to bank B so you borrow from them and then take you back to bank A. Because it turns out, although bank B have got a problem with bank A, bank A actually haven't got a problem with bank B. It doesn't make sense, but that's how it is. And so you need somebody who understands all of this. And... The other thing which you really need them to understand is what you're trying to achieve, what you're going to try and achieve in property over the next, say, 36 or 60 months, for example. Because knowing what your plan is, then they can start to put together some kind of structure where they know exactly where to go to raise the finance and eradicate all of these problems and these bumps in the road. Second thing, which maybe some investors and particularly new investors don't always appreciate fully, is that not all brokers can provide all the different types of finance. Many will specialise in particular types of finance, but some don't. And again, although this isn't a hard and fast rule, my experience is that the more general a broker is, they tend not to be that great at all of the different types of finance. So if I wanted to raise buy-to-let finance, for example, I would go to a buy-to-let specialist. But you'll find that many buy-to-let specialists might dabble in HMO finance or they may dabble in bridging and some of them may even try doing a little bit of commercial lending. And you know what, I'd I'd forgive them that. If they were great at buy-to-let lending, it wouldn't bother me that perhaps they were being slightly more of a generalist. But, and this is the big but really, 
If I wanted HMO finance or bridging finance, I'd go to a broker who was a HMO funding specialist or a specialist bridging broker. I wouldn't allow my buy-to-let specialist who might dabble in HMO finance and who might dabble in bridging finance to find me that. I would go to somebody who sees themselves first and foremost as being the broker who deals with that type of lending. So you're probably going to want more than one broker for each type of finance. The reason why I say that is because you don't know when your broker is going to be busy, you don't know when they're going to be ill, you don't know when they're going to be on holiday. And if you've got multiple deals going through, you need to have somebody who's working on the job the whole time. So for each strategy, you might need a different type of finance. And for each type of finance, you might need more than one broker. And as I say, you'll definitely want brokers for each of those different types of finance anyway. So you're probably going to have a whole team of brokers and not just be relying upon one broker. And I think possibly one of the mistakes I see is the assumption, particularly with new investors, that you only need one broker. No, no, you need more than one. You're going to need two per type of finance, or maybe even two per strategy. So what is the best way of finding your broker? Well, I would say definitely referrals. And that's one of the great things about being part of the progressive community, because on the Facebook group and on the VIP Facebook group, you can ask for referrals, you can ask who knows of a great broker, and getting an endorsement of somebody is going to be far better than perhaps just responding to an advert, for example. You want to know that they can actually do what you want them to do, and you can talk to other investors and find out how they helped them and to make sure that they can do the things that you want to do. In the past on the podcast, I've said I've been happy to give you details of Alistair, my broker, who is very good, particularly for buy-to-let. He can also do some bridging and some commercial. And if you want to have his details, that's fine. Just get in touch with me. Email me at, well, my email address, thepropertyteacher at gmail.com, and I'll be happy to pass you on. By the way, if you're going to do that, then please do give me some bullet points as to what you want to talk to Alistair about. It's not just about ringing him up for a chat. But if you have a particular project that you want to finance, if you're about to buy your first property and you need to raise finance, just send me a very quick email with a couple of bullet points explaining what you want, and I'll be happy to put you in touch with Alistair. But within the progressive community, we've got loads and loads of great brokers. And what I'll try and do is I'll try and get a few of them in on the podcast and talk to them as well to give you plenty of choice. Because you're not just going to have the one broker, as I say, you need to know what they can do. And maybe go. it's all about horses for courses, and you need to know who to go to. So I'd definitely be looking on Facebook. I'd definitely be talking to other investors at networking events. Again, it's referrals. Referrals are so important in property. It's not just for finding broker brokers. It's going to be for finding all of your power team, as we like to call it at Progressive. When you come on the trainings at Progressive, which I hope you will, and if you haven't, then please do, then ask the, the actual trainers themselves. I know, for example, Anne Halted, when she's doing masterclass, is very happy to give details of her broker, Daniel. And uh, I'm sure others will as well. So definitely ask the trainers. They're a wealth of information. By the way, something which I'm quite often asked is, does the broker need to be based near where the properties are? And a similar question is, is it okay if I can meet the broker and sit down with them? So there's this idea that the geographic location of your broker is going to be important. But the reality is it doesn't matter. The broker does not have to be geographically close to your properties that you're buying. They don't need to know the area. What they need to know is how the banks operate and they need to know the underwriters. That's far more important. 
And I'll be honest with you, I've never ever sat down with any of my brokers and a lot of my brokers I've never ever met in person, although obviously I've spoken to them on the phone. So the idea of sitting down with your broker is quite a nice idea if you can, but I wouldn't say that it's essential. I know, for example, having mentioned Anne Halton and, and her broker, Daniel, I know that Daniel, if he can, likes to go and meet his clients, but many of them don't. Another broker of mine, as I say, I've got several, not just Alistair, but another broker of mine, he actually refuses to meet his clients, but he's a really, really good broker. What he'd rather be doing is raising the finance rather than sitting around chatting. So everybody's different. There are no hard and fast rules. So the next question comes from Charlotte Haynes. Thank you, Charlotte. And she asks, how easy is it to move up to the next strategy? Wow, that's an interesting question because there's so many assumptions even behind the question itself. Charlotte, what a loaded question, but in a good way. Well, it all depends on obviously which strategy you're starting at. Now, if you've been to a progressive training, you'll know that we talk about the progressive pyramid of strategies. And it starts off pretty much with buy to let at the bottom, then it goes up to BRR, which is a way of financing buy to lets and flips. And then it goes up to things like HMOs and lease options, and then up to basic commercial properties, and then up to sort of super high-end commercial stuff like casinos, I seem to remember. So where are you actually going to be starting? Because where you're starting is obviously going to impact upon where you can move up. But I don't think it really matters as long as you have a clear strategy and you have a plan in place. Let me just rewind a little bit because the conventional wisdom is and our teaching here at Progressive is that we think it's better to start nearer the bottom of the pyramid and work your way up. So if you can, you probably should start by buying a few buy-to-lets. If you can do it with the BRR model so you can refinance and get your money back out, all well and good. Or if you want to be a little bit more courageous, maybe you could start with the odd flip or two. That would be the conventional wisdom. Why? Because you're going to get experience doing your buy-to-let. If you go and buy a small buy-to-let up north, for example, and it costs you £60,000, you're not betting the farm. Hopefully nothing's going to go wrong. And if you come to the trainings, we teach you how to do it, then that will greatly reduce your risk, of course, so you'll know exactly what you're doing. But even if something did go terribly wrong, if you start off with a small project, a basic vanilla buy-to-let, there's a lot of learning involved and hopefully it's not going to go terribly wrong. And by the way, just in case you're worrying, thinking he's talking about stuff going wrong, you know, I'm not going to try and paper over the cracks here or pull the wool over your eyes or whatever metaphor you want me to use. Things happen in property. There will be bumps along the way. But by and large, property is very, very forgiving. And even if you make a mistake, chances are it's not going to have a big impact on you, particularly if you have enough time to let it all work its way through the system. And my co-trainer on Masterclass often says that uh, a mistake in property is a bit like having a bad haircut. It'll grow out eventually. So you'll be fine. But it makes sense to start nearer the bottom of the pyramid if you can, because if you can get some experience with buy-to-lets, for example, when you go off and start doing HMOs, six months later or nine months later or 12 months later, should you wish to, you'll find that a lot of lenders will like the fact that you've got experience and they'll feel far more comfortable about lending to you for another strategy because you've got some basic experience. Now, having said all of that, one of the things which I absolutely loved when I first came to Progressive, which is about five years ago, is that I came here as a chartered surveyor 
with quite a lot of property experience, and I'm not saying this to be snotty or saying that I'm better than anybody else, but I came here, I was a property professional, and I already had, I don't know, 60-odd properties in my portfolio at that time. But when I walked through the door at Progressive, one thing which I saw was people doing the most amazing things, people who were doing stuff which I hadn't even thought of doing, people who were undertaking strategies which I was thinking, hang on a sec, should you be doing that? I'm not doing that. How's this going to work out? But as I watched, it all worked out fine. And that was a massive challenge to me. And do you remember going back to Adlan's question about what was the worst bit of advice I had? The worst bit of advice I had was be careful, be cautious. And I wouldn't want to actually say the same in answer to this question. So Charlotte, I'm not going to say be cautious. That would be totally going against everything that I believe and everything that I've just said. And one of the great things I think about being able to jump straight in at a higher level is that because of the progressive community, because of the trainings, because there's the support and the encouragement, because there's people who you can ask questions of, whether it be the trainers, whether it be people in the community, it means that a lot of the problems which you could have trying to do strategies perhaps at a higher level, but trying to do them on your own in a vacuum could cause problems. But here, with the support you have, I think it makes it much more doable and much more likely to succeed. So what am I saying? What I'm trying to say is the best way to move up to the next strategy is probably just to do it. So I don't know where you are in the, in the pyramid of strategies, but wherever you are on that level, if there's a strategy that you fancy doing, then I would say do it. Now, before you do it though, and I would say this of course, because we are a training company, but this is the sensible thing to do, I would make sure that I was trained in that strategy and I'd make sure that I'd have a support group around me and the right team around me to make sure that I could undertake that strategy. If that was in place, then I would go for it. One of the things which I've realised from coming here is that there are really no limits. The only limit is really the limits that we set ourselves in our mind space. And mindset is so important. If you believe that you can achieve and you can undertake strategies at a high level, Charlotte, then go for it. Just put the team around you. Make sure that you get the education. Don't just go off and try it. Don't think, you know what, I'm going to have a go at doing some commercial conversions today and, and go off and do it. Get yourself trained. But if you're getting the right training, yes, people start at commercial conversions, which is a very sophisticated high level on the strategy pyramid in many of us, uh, you know, you'd think. But they manage to do it. People without very much experience do it. I say they manage to do it like they only just get there. No, they absolutely smash it because they've got the right team and they've got the right education. So short answer, Charlotte, before you move strategy, just get yourself educated. Get yourself educated, get the right team around you and all the resources are here at Progressive to do that. Got a question here from Frankie Lafondre. What's it like being the host of the Progressive podcast? Well, Frankie, most of the time it's okay, except when they just shove all these questions in my face and expect me to answer them off the cuff, which I'm loving, by the way. No, I don't mind at all. What's it like being the host of the Progressive podcast? It's great. I must admit, when I first took it on, I wasn't quite sure what I was letting myself in for, because believe it or not, I've already confessed to being a little bit lazy. I'm also not very disciplined. So I know that it's a struggle at times to make sure that I'm 
producing the content. And so far, and Harry's looking at me and laughing a bit because he knows I struggle with this, but so far we haven't missed a week. So we're doing okay and we're up to the 100th episode and he's giving me a thumbs up for that. So it's great, but it's also a bit of a pressure, but I also love it. And one thing which I really love, which maybe just says more about me than it should, is when, when people come up in the trainings and they say, ah, oh, you're the host of the podcast. How amazing to meet you. And then we have a selfie. And that's really good. But I've got a very fragile ego. So there we go. So it's all good. And of course, it's great to be able to give back. It's great to be able to share my experience. But it's also good for me because I think, you know, we live in the social media age now, don't we? And everybody expects you to be a bit of a, of a celebrity. I think, I'm not saying I'm a celebrity, by the way, but if I am, I'm a very minor celebrity. But there we go. Within the progressive world, I suppose I am a little bit. And I think that's quite good. So, yeah, I like it, Frankie. Thank you. Right, a bit more of a technical question here from Mark Gooding Jr. How do you think Brexit will affect the property market? You know, I knew somebody was going to ask that. And I was thinking, shall I even try and answer that? But I will. I'll give an answer. But the thing is, I'm recording this now in October 2018. And you may be listening to this long past March the 29th, 2019. And you'll know exactly how Brexit has affected things. So you'll be able to look back and you'll be able to say, oh, that Peter Jones, he either had it spot on or he knew nothing. The reality is, though, I've got no clue. I don't think anybody's really got a clue. I mean, my best guess would be, probably, Mark, that uh, it's probably going to slow things down. I think over the last few months, we've seen the property market slowing down. Well, I say that. Let me, let me just take a step back from that. We've seen the property market slowing down in London, perhaps, is a more accurate way of putting it. And a lot of that is attributed to the fact that perhaps overseas buyers and investors aren't coming into the market so much. There could be more to it than that. The government have been trying to discourage overseas investors and buyers coming into the market. They've increased stamp duty to punitively high rates. There's talk that they may go up again in the next budget. By the way, the budget's only a week or so away. So again, if you can listen after, if you're listening after the budget, you'll know whether this happens or not. But there's talk about maybe putting stamp duty up even more and also increasing taxes on overseas investors and buyers. So that's probably only going to make the downturn in London a little bit steeper. The rest of the country, though, at the time that I'm recording this, is doing okay. And the latest statistics that came out from the ONS, the Office of National Statistics, suggests that the the best place at the moment in the country is the East Midlands, where house prices are rising faster than anywhere else. But as a general rule, anywhere sort of north of Northampton at the moment is still doing pretty well. And anywhere sort of south of Northampton is kind of struggling. And that's what you'd expect. I said in a previous podcast that there's the ripple effect, which I won't go into again now. But if, you listen to the, if you've listened to all 100 episodes, you know I've talked about this before, you would expect that with the ripple effect. You'd expect the north to still be increasing while London and the south are dipping a little bit. We'll get to the point where the northeast goes up under the normal course of things, then everything will stop and there'll be the next crash and then it will all go again because the property market is a cycle. So how specifically is Brexit going to affect the property market? Well, if it's already slowing London, then that slowing will eventually go out into the provinces. But this is my big concern, actually, and I've got no idea whether this is going to happen or not. But even today, while recording this, there is so much uncertainty around Brexit. 
And today, and as I say, it may all have changed again by tomorrow, and you'll, you'll know this better than I when you listen to it. But today they're talking about extending the transition period. Now, that might sound sensible because nobody actually knows what to do and they need to sit around and talk about it and plan it a little more deeply than they have. But the reality is that if, if the whole system for leaving Europe becomes prolonged, surely investors are just going to sit on their hands for longer. Surely it's much more chance that any slowdown in the property market is going to be prolonged. So my guess, Mark, is probably it's not going to do it a lot of good. I think we're already seeing that there's a lack of investment and it's not just from overseas buyers. Businesses are sitting on their hands. Perhaps businesses who would have been moving into new properties, perhaps investment companies who would have been buying more properties in the city of London, property companies who might have been buying out in the provinces, firms who are upsizing and wanting new premises, they're probably all sitting on their hands and that's having an effect not just on the property market but the economy as a whole, which is what the Bank of England have been warning about. The Brexiteers, not wanted to get political, but here we are getting into my flow now, but the Brexiteers haven't liked the Bank of England saying that Brexit was probably going to hold the economy back. But inevitably, I think that was always going to be the case and it's the common sense view and that's going to affect the property market. If and when somebody can come to a conclusion as to how to deal with Brexit, and I'm wondering even if that's just having a no deal and walking out, which apparently, again, without getting into the technicalities of Brexit, apparently a no deal doesn't really actually exist because there's a deal not to do a deal, if you see what I mean. But anyway, we won't get into that. But if there were no deal in the sense that we understand it and we walked away, but at least there would be certainty. And I think what we need for anything to move on, whether it be in business or property, is certainty. So if there's a deal anytime soon, which at the moment seems unlikely, but they're now mooting that something might be done by Christmas, we'll see. That could help. Otherwise, we're just waiting and waiting and waiting. And I think while we're waiting, the property market will just start grinding to a halt. Sad thing is that if you believe in the 18-year property cycle, and I'm pretty well convinced that it's, it is a cycle of that kind of a length, whether it's 15 or 20 years or whatever, moot point, but there is a long-term property cycle, we would be coming to a point now where we'd be looking at the next boom time coming. My concern as a property investor who already has a portfolio, very selfishly, is that that boom might be delayed. It may not even happen. It may be that we then have to wait for the boom at the end of the next 18-year property cycle, whenever that starts. Hopefully it won't come to that. Short answer though, Mark, I don't think it's going to do it any good. Oh, here's a, a really controversial question. Melanie Hart, do you think another crash is coming soon? Melanie, what a question. Wow. Where do I even begin with this? Let's just start with the obvious point. Is there going to be another crash? Yes, there is going to be another crash. Why? I've just said it in the answer to the last question, actually, because property is cyclical. The property market is cyclical. It comes and it goes, it's booms and it's busts. And I don't see anything ever changing that. Gordon Brown famously said about 15 years ago, didn't he, that he was going to end the cycle of boom and bust. And everybody laughed at him, which I thought was a bit unfair. But as it was, actually, we ended up having the biggest bust we've had for decades, didn't we, when the credit crunch came, which wasn't his fault, by the way, before you get on to me and say I'm being all overly political. No, I'm just saying that he said he was going to try and end it. 
But it's very hard because there's reasons why markets move in cycles and you'd have to change the way that we do business basically I think to get rid of those cycles. So is there going to be another crash? Yes there's going to be another crash. Uh, just referring back to my last answer to Mark's question I referred to the 18-year property cycle and as I say I'm very convinced by that. If you're not sure what the 18-year property cycle is Google it because I haven't really got time to go into the ins and outs of it now but it does seem to be that over a period of time, and if you go back over sort of like 100 years, 150 years, there seems to be this underlying cycle within property, and it tends to be roughly around about 18 years, give or take. And if you plot it, going back from, say, the, the credit crunch, as I said in the last answer, we would now be coming up to a time of boom. And that boom would last until about 2025, maybe 2023, there's no hard and fast rules. For those who are a bit analytical out there, I don't think you can actually be very precise in pinpointing this. But roughly, probably early to mid-2020s, we'd be looking then for the next crash to come along in the normal course of things. But Mark's already raised the point. Is Brexit going to throw all that off kilter? Probably. What used to happen or what could have happened probably isn't going to happen this time round. Maybe because of Brexit. So I can quite envisage a situation where Brexit actually either stops the next boom coming or it just brings the next crash forward. But I could be wrong, because as I said in the answer to the last question, if they get this resolved and if they work out how we're going to move away from Europe, maybe the big sigh of relief from business and investors means that things will then move on again. But while we're having this situation while we're all sitting on our hands, Melanie, I think it means that the next crash is more likely how likely? I don't know. One of the things which I think has really saved the property market so far is that there is a real shortage of sellers. Again, this is the sitting on the hands effect, but people just are not putting their properties on the market, which means that there's not that many properties for people to buy. And if there's a shortage of supply, what's that do? It maintains values and it maintains prices. If that continues, and it probably will, then I think the property market will probably just tread water. We've seen over the last few years that property values have gone up by no more than 2 or 3% a year over the last few years. Interestingly, the press, and you know I've got a bit of a thing about the press, if you listen to my rant podcast, I've got a thing about them, because they still describe a 2 or 3% increase over the course of a year as being a hike. Oh, honestly, I, mean, I remember the days when property prices went up like 30 or 40% in a year. Now that is a hike. So 2 or 3% is neither here nor there. It's only sort of keeping up with inflation, really. But that's the way it's been. I think we'll probably just see more of that for the time being. But, you know, if Brexit goes horribly wrong, Melanie, that's probably when the crash will come because then those who've been sitting on their hands thinking, well, I'm going to wait until things are clarified, I'll wait until things are better, they may say, wow, it's never going to get better. I'm going to try and get out of the market now. and We might see some panic selling. Who knows? That would be my guess, though, which is, I don't know what to guess, Melanie. I've got no idea. There we are. I won't babble. Gary, great question. Gary Hilson. Gary has asked, are rental properties more difficult to fill with Europeans not wanting to settle with Brexit on the horizon? Gosh, a whole run of Brexit questions. Well, Gary, I have to say, I suppose the short answer to that is it depends on where you're buying and where you're looking to rent your properties out. If you're renting into a market which at the moment is predominantly Europeans, then it's probably going to be the case that you may struggle. 
I've got a couple of HMOs up in Doncaster and I know that most of my clients, which is what I like to call them, have been from Eastern Europe. And I know there have been times when there's been quite a, a glut of properties chasing not so many tenants. And so I think, yes, it will have an impact. I think until it's, it's the same old answer, isn't it? Until we got some certainty and everybody knows what's, what's going on, then it's probably going to be a bit tricky. I know that quite a few of our Eastern European clients, for example, have gone back home. Now, for some people, they may say that's great. Other people may say that's terrible. The reality is, and I'm not trying not to be political here, but, you know, we've got employment at the moment is at the highest level it's been for 40 years. We actually need somebody to do some work. And that was one of the great things, which I think inward immigration was allowing people to come over who were going to help do the work. There's lots of jobs that need to be done. Who's going to do those jobs? I don't know. It's going to have an impact on the economy. But for us as investors, yes, it's going to have an impact. So what would I be suggesting? Well, if you were looking to buy, I would suggest you that you really want to understand your local rental market and to understand the demographic of your tenants. And if you're worried about Europeans and Brexit, and I think it's a valid call, it may be that in two years' time, if you're listening to this, and Brexit's been resolved and everything's OK again and we're open for business again in the UK, it may not be an issue. But in the short term, potentially it could be. So I'd be looking to understand the demographics of your local area. And if you're worried particularly about that, look for a different demographic. And I've got to be very careful because I don't want to make, make it sound like I'm being a racist because I'm not. And I'm not, not at all. I'm not trying to discriminate against anybody. I'm just trying to be a practical property investor. Who's the most likely person to rent your property? What's the most likely type of tenant? And that's what I would be looking at. And in fact, I'm going to stop now before I dig a big hole for myself. So there we go. Well, these have been great questions. And you know, we've had so many questions sent in. And I really want to thank you for engaging and being such a supportive community out there. There's so many questions that actually I'm going to do a second follow-up episode next week. So this is part one, if you like, and I'll come back to you in part two and we'll answer even more questions. So thank you for that. In the meantime, I've been Peter Jones. And if you want to know more about me, you can always come over to my website, www.thepropertyteacher.co.uk. Otherwise, until next week, when we get into part two and we cover more questions of the Progressive Property Podcast, here's two successful property investing. <laughs>